if you've been disciplined enough to go through an athletic program and play and bust your butt and go out there and get your nose bloodied and get your arm cracked and get a headache and get up off the ground and fight some more, well, damn it, you can go back and study music and study anything else and get good at it because everything else is a lot easier than that. So, <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Pats, the podcast about people who have lived unusual lives marked by dramatic change or a sense of living different lives simultaneously. My name is Donald Gallery, and you just heard a little snippet from today's guest, Morris Duran Robinson. Morris was an All-American college football player for the Citadel, the military college of South Carolina. When his dream of playing in the NFL didn't work out, he first got a job in the corporate world, working for 3M for the best part of a decade, before seizing upon the opportunity to follow his lifelong passion for singing. Now, he is one of the most sought-after bass opera singers in the world, having performed at pretty much all the major opera houses, including the Metropolitan, Carnegie Hall, the Royal Albert Hall, La Scala, and the Sydney Opera House, amongst many others. Join me to hear all about Morris's incredible story. If you have an unusual life story or know someone who does, please get in touch with me by email at patspodcastpeople at gmail.com. Huge thanks to Barry Dorsey for putting me in touch with Morris. Thanks also to Danny Golden for becoming a patron recently and to Sean Butler who helped me out with the editing of this episode. All greatly appreciated. Okay, over to Morris. Enjoy. Hey, how's it going? How are you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm happy, happy and honored and flattered to be here, man. <laughs> our, our mutual friend Barry Dorsey uh, put me in touch with you and he introduced something which is like, kind of my first question and, and is an interesting thing about you that you are you are known professionally as Morris Robinson correct and you know your website says Morris Robinson and everything but Barry introduced me to you as Duran <laughs> and I've also seen you uh, written as Morris Duran Robinson uh, online as well um, so yeah I was just curious about that to, to kind of kick off uh, you you were saying when we chatted the other day you were saying that you've kind of considered using Duran professionally yeah at a future day is that can i tell you this, something you think you might do or can i tell you the story as to why i stopped using the run <laughs> yeah please yeah so when i was in college with barry who was my roommate in college i was very very conscientious back in the late 80s early 90s of an ethnic sounding name being on my resume and how that would play into the hiring potential hiring of me by a corporation so I figured if I didn't have it, I figured if I put Duran on there, they'd know they got a black guy. And, you know, not everybody was really comfortable with that, I assumed. And I was probably right. And so going with Morris Robinson, it just sounded like a more clean cut American name, which was more common terminology than someone like Duran. My spelling of my name was different. Um, so I went with that to kind of, you know, it's unfortunate. These are some of the hoops you jump through. But I, I went with that to try to uh, blend better and not stand out as what I really am. I hated doing it. I hated, in retrospect, I was like, you know, I shouldn't have had to do that. And in the opera world, because of the same reason, I was already more in the business world, I just became, I kept that name. One of my uh, mentors said, maybe you should change your name to Duran singularly, just Duran, not Duran Robinson or Morris Duran Robinson. Like Madonna. Yeah. And see, but then I said, you know, I don't want to become the artist formerly known as Morris Robinson. So, <laughs> I just figured I'd just keep what I got and go with that instead, you know? Nice. But I, I guess from what you're saying, like your wife, Denise, uh, at home, you'd be Duran. Is that right? 
usually they don't call me by my name at home. Usually they tell me to shut up. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't get much respect here at all. Not much respect at all. Right. Fair enough. Um, it was ever thus, I think. So um, you grew up in Georgia, in Atlanta. Yeah. Grew up in the southwest part of Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, born and raised, and I left in 1987 to go to college. And I didn't move back here until 2007. So, yeah. You told me that your dad was a preacher and your granddad was a preacher. So my dad was a preacher. My mom's dad was a preacher. So I had it on both sides of the family, you know. Right. And um, you said that that you've only loved two things outside of your family. You've only loved two things in your life, music and football. Um, and we're going to hear all about how those things kind of unfolded in your life. But I'm curious about how, how those loves began. So when did you when did you first discover those two loves in your life? Well, I don't know when music became part of my life because I don't remember when it wasn't. Like I was always naturally talented as a musician. I grew up with a musical ear. My dad said when I was a toddler, I was really, really young. Uh, he had a, a, he was an avid jazz collector, had a big jazz collection and I would just sit on the floor and play with his records. One day he came in there and I had all his records on the floor and he freaked out. But, uh, you know, my mom thought something was wrong with me, but one of her friends was like, no, he's just musically inclined. He loves music. And that's been me my whole life. I like always loved music in this various styles, various disciplines. I've just always loved music. I always find it fascinating and intriguing. And I was pretty good at it. You know, I was never a virtuoso player at anything. I was a really good drummer. Um, and still like to think that I'm a pretty decent drummer at 52. Uh, but no, I, music has always been natural for me. Uh, sports grew on me. Um, you know, we grew up in Southwest Atlanta as an African-American kid. You know, you we played out in the yard a lot. And we played a lot of football, a lot of other sports. And those are the things, you know, you know, it, in my neighborhood and in our culture, especially back then, you know, the rite of passage was your ability to to uh, stand up for yourself and prove yourself on the playing field. That was kind of the rite of passage. That was how you earned respect. And so it became important to me to try to do that. You know, I think in retrospect, and I probably said this before, um, maybe I was so passionate about sports because I knew that I was really good at music and tried to avoid the labels associated with music, you know, being soft, being sweet, that kind of thing. So I think I had to, I had to prove to people that, you know, I'm not that type of guy. I'm also really great at music, but knock your head off too. So I think that's probably what fuels <laughs> me or, you know, you know, when you're the young, when you're the nerdy kid and you're pretty articulate and smart and you, you're good at music, you know, it's a tough period growing up where the other boys, you know, especially the older boys give you a hard time about it. You know, they think you're soft. So uh, mm. I end up proving proving otherwise, you know. So yeah, as we'll hear, so we'll hear that. But that is uh, it's typical kind of masculine rite of passage, isn't it? I think so in all cultures. Yeah, yeah. And so I gather you went to a would you call it a performing arts high school? Is that how it's described? Yeah, so I went to a school called Northside School of the Performing Arts. It was a magnet program. It was naturally the school that my school fed into. Um, in America, right after the Civil Rights Movement, um, which I was born in 69, 
they started a program here in the South, in Atlanta, where they call Busing Minority to Majority Program. Uh, and a lot of the African-American kids that live on the Black side of town, because that's how things were and still kind of are, were allowed the opportunity to ride buses to the white side of town to get what was perceived as better education, better facilities, uh, more diversity. And it was the, the intent was wonderful to cross-pollinate and introduce culture to both sides. So I think it was wonderful. I think that it prepared me for the rest of my life. I have white friends that I went to high school, middle school, elementary school with, who I'm still friends with today, who would not have, other than this program, met Black kids and become friends with their families, and likewise. So I think it prepared us for the world. But um, that's a tangent that I went on. But because I went to those schools in Buckhead, my, my elementary school naturally fed into the middle school. The middle school naturally fed to the high school. And there were two high schools in my region. One was North Fulton, the other was North Side. North Side had a school of the arts, and they had become pretty famous. Uh, we had Jasmine Guy there, David Hasselhoff went there. RuPaul went to my high school, actually. No way. Yeah, and these these this arts program became a magnet program, like, statewide. People would move to Atlanta to get their kids in this program because of performance opportunities. Billy Dinsmore really built it to the point where Coca-Cola had a group of us called the, the Coca-Zit Kids. We did all their commercials, all their jingles on, you know, in the studio and recorded that for them. We would do shows for IBM. We'd do shows for Coca-Cola. We'd do shows for Xerox. When they had these big meetings, they would bring our school in and hire the, you know, hire the, uh, the administration will set up the contract, of course. So they hire us in. It was a full traveling uh, variety show. We had sound system. We had everything. that We had our own stage. It was really a, a whole thing. And I think that, I, you know, in retrospect, it, I, I didn't know it was going to prepare me for my life now, but it, it, it did, you know. But I had performance opportunities that one could not believe being at the School of the Arts. Uh, my sophomore year, we toured Europe. Every, we did this every year. My first trip to Europe was 15 years old, going to Belgium, singing in the chorus. My next year, we did that Mozart Requiem, and I was the bass soloist for the Mozart Requiem. We toured uh, Belgium, Paris, and London. My senior year, same thing with the Haydn's Creation. I got the bass soloist for the Haydn's Creation. We toured Belgium, Paris, London. That was kind of our thing. Then after that, we went to Japan with the tour show. I was in the tour show also, and captain of the football team. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> I... <laughs> I lived in two different worlds and I was a church drummer. So, you know, the gig life has kind of been my life since I was about 15, 16 years old. Just never thought that I would be how I earned a living. But yeah. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, but before we go forward, that, that experience of going to Europe, did, what, how did that strike you when you were that age? The differences between America and Europe. Do you have any memory of that? I do. And I remember uh, the year of my freshman year, I didn't go. But uh, the news stations had made a really big deal about it. And we had news cameras follow the kids over there. And this is when breakdancing was starting out. You're talking 1983, 84. Kids were doing, you know, we had a dance crew. They were pop locking and stuff. And kids in Belgium weren't really into that because, the, you know, the cross-pollinizational culture wasn't really happening. then. so they were, they were always fascinated by the things that we did. And I think that, you know, we became fascinated with European culture in, in each place that we went. Uh, when I finally got there, you know, we stayed at the Hotel Metropole in Belgium. We were right around the corner from the square. We got to see Dominican peace and, you know, I had palm frites. You know, it's just a different lifestyle. We were able to drink alcohol without an age limit in some places. So <laughs> it was cool. I think that it was also just, again, another example of uh, being exposed to culture that I would not normally have gotten exposed to had I stayed 
in the school system on my side of town. But uh, we all were learning together, not realizing that we were learning life lessons. We were just learning, you know, and being exposed to things. And, you know, this level of privilege of being able to tour Europe every year, you know, it's a, it's a big deal. So I'm glad that, you know, in retrospect, I'm glad that it was, I was able to participate in that, you know? Yeah. So I'm curious about your move from high school to college because you got into Citadel on a football scholarship, right? Yes. Yeah. So can you just f- describe to people who might not be so familiar with it, like how good do you need to be at high school football to get a scholarship? Well, I don't know if it's more competitive now than it was then or if it was more competitive then than it is now, but I'd like to say it was more competitive then than it is now because there weren't as many programs as there are now and we didn't have social media and email and that type of thing. So coach, you had to stand out on the field and uh, going to a small, I went to a big high school, but our football team was small. So we had 28 players on our team. We were playing against people that had 70 and 80, 100 players on their team. So we all played both ways. And, you know, we did, in retrospect, we had a horrible weight training program. There was none. We had maybe four coaches instead of 10, 15 coaches, you know, horrible equipment. We just, that wasn't our focus. But, you know, um, in America, you got to be, in any school, there may be 100 kids on the football team, 500 high schools in Georgia. Of that 100 kids, maybe two are good enough to get scholarships. Maybe. Right. Um, if you go to a really, really good school that's really competitive and has a great program and a weight program and lots of coaching and that type of thing, you know, you can get five or six that get a scholarship. And then those scholarships, I mean, they might be half scholarships. They may be small schools. They may be big schools. It just depends. So it's not easy. It's not a guaranteed thing. You really have to first. You got to beat out everybody on your team in your school to become a starter. Then you got to be a good player when you play against other people and you're playing against their best kids. And uh, in order to get a scholarship, you got to be a pretty standout athlete, you know. And it, it requires academics and all those things. And then, unless I mean, yeah. you know, then you get to the next level, college. And there are different rankings of college. You know, you guys know the big schools over there. We have Notre Dame, Michigan, Penn State, Georgia, Florida, Alabama. You know, those are the big, big schools. And then there's one level down, which we call the FCS. We used to call 1AA. And that's where you got Citadel, uh, James Madison, Youngstown State, you know, places like that. So I was at that level. Um, but then when you get to that level, then you have these college teams are now comprised of the best high school players at every school they went to. So, you know, it, it gets more and more competitive. I mean, everyone on my team, even though we went to the 1AA school, everybody on my team was one of the best, if not the best player in their whole high school. So mm. it gets really competitive. You know, it's a tough, tough deal. But the reward is you get a free education. You know, you get your, well, let me tell you that back. It's not free because you, you earn it. You know, you you belong to the team. Mm. You belong to the coaching staff. If they're going to pay, they're going to pick up the tab on your fifty, sixty thousand dollar a year education, then you're going to work for it. You know, and it was cool though because you know, I'm talking to my son now. Big bodies need to work out, and our desire is not to, our natural affinity isn't just to get up and go motivate ourselves and work out. So, I believe that that helped keep me in shape and it helped me with my confidence and social life and all that kind of stuff. So. There are a lot of benefits to sports, not just going to the professionals, but just setting you up for life. So I'm, I'm a strong believer still in team sports. And so just so the listener or viewer 
understands uh you were a guard right yeah so when i got to citadel i was uh I, they recruited me as a defensive tackle uh when i got there we ran the wishbone offense and i think the coaching staff at the time wanted better athletes on the offense because we did a lot of pulling and trapping and you needed strong guys that can move so i left spring practice my freshman year as the number two defensive tackle I came back after spring break and I was the number two offensive guard behind two All-Americans. But that was my new home. And uh, I enjoyed playing offensive guard. I really did. It was, uh, yeah. So just so the European people can understand, offensive guards are like one of the big people up front that knocks people out the way for the little guys in the back. So <laughs> we block for the quarterback. <laughs> we keep people from touching the quarterback and we make holes for the running backs. So yeah, big on big. Yeah, it's like a scrum in the middle and then the little guys, you know, scoring through. So you had the choice to go to all these different colleges, both with football scholarships and with music scholarships. So why did you choose to go to this military college that was so much about discipline and everything, as opposed to colleges that be full of partying and you know typical fun times at college? Maybe insanity, I guess. Um <laughs> No, I, I think that uh, in the, it's interesting you would ask that question because just last night I ran into the one guy, uh, one of the two guys that made my decision for me. Um, I was being hosted on a recruiting trip at Citadel, and I'd already been to other schools and had parties and went out drinking and got drunk and got in fights with the other football team and, you know, just kind of being the big man on campus and played that role. And it was a great, fun environment that I knew I was going to be able to graduate in because I just didn't think I had the discipline to do so. And then I go to the Citadel, you go on campus at nighttime, you see all the lights, you see the barracks, you see people in uniforms, and you think, wow, this is a pretty special kind of place. Why would they want me? You know, what makes me caliber person? And then my recruiting host, who I saw last night from since I graduated, um, is an upperclassman. We went out to a party the first night. And then we got back to the hotel, we crashed, got the next day. He says, hey, man, would you meet somebody? I called his buddy over and said, this is my my buddy, J.D. Coffin. He's going to look out for you because I have to go study for a biology test I have on Monday. I'll be going about four or five hours. I, I got to put the study it in, and then I'll catch up with you guys later. But we're in the middle of a football recruiting trip, and this guy is hitting the pause button so he can go study. First time that's ever happened, as far as I know, and because it happened, it made me think to myself that this is the type of guy and these are the type of guys that I probably need to be around, you know, mm. because they're the ones that have their priorities in order. They're the ones that are going to get their work done. And I probably would, I want to be in this type of environment. I think this is exactly, you know, I'm first going to go to I'm the oldest kid. So I got to be by example. So I have to be successful. This is where I need to go. And that was the decision for me. And another guy, Lance Thompson, who ended up being the, one of the recruiters in the country for college football, this famous line he said, the Citadel is not a great place to be, but it's one hell of a place to be from. And I just thought, you know, how can you pass up an opportunity to get this type of a degree from this level of respected school? So because of such, I made the decision that if they offered me a full ride, I was going to go there. And I, that Sunday in his office, I called my parents and said, hey, they just offered me a full scholarship. That's what made the decision for me, you know. Of course, my parents had to come. My mom was like, I don't want you to go there. They're going to be mean to you. And my dad was like, yeah, you need this kind of discipline in your life. You take your ass there. So, you know, it was, uh, <laughs> it was, you know, mom was being, dad was definitely being dad. 
and uh, you know, it turned out that it was a good move. You know, and I gather, as we talked a little bit about before, it wasn't entirely kind of dry military just hanging out with the guys all the time there was some kind of socializing with girls and stuff in other campuses around charleston yeah well, you know when you have a when you have all all middle school you know there's always a comparable equivalent of the opposite around we hope at least and uh the college of charleston was very close and it had i think it was about 70 70 percent women and uh they didn't want they didn't want college Charleston guys anyway. Those were the loser hippie types. They, they didn't want those guys. They knew we had futures, right? They knew we were gonna get good jobs. They knew we went to the school ball team. So we had all they actually had a great basketball team over there, but who cares about basketball? It's football. So yeah, they we had a lot, we had a lot of regard. So uh, it was tough getting out, but, you know, we learned how to break the rules. We learned how to hide the back of cars. We knew how to jump fences. You could do, you know, we military academy is very strict, but I think it also teaches you how to break the rules without getting caught. <laughs> so we, we became masters of that as well. So, yeah. Sounds like a good laugh. I think to a lot of listeners, the whole concept of military college will be kind of slightly alien. So what did that actually mean in terms of like day to day? What was a typical day at Citadel like? Well, you know, it's a military academy and the the structure of everything in the curriculum and the daily life was that of being in military barracks. So you wake up in the morning to the trumpet playing Reveille, which wakes up. And we, the first thing we do is clean up our rooms, sweep, you know, get all, as freshmen, sweep, clean up your rooms, take out the trash cans, take out upperclassmen's trash cans, clean their, clean their doorways. Then you go to formation. You form up and you march to breakfast. When you get done with breakfast, you uh, you march back to your rooms and then you go and get your brass and your shoes shined up and everything for the first morning formation, which happens before your 750 class. So at about 25, you go down for formation where you're inspected. You hear the announcements for the day over the loudspeaker. Then they break formation. You run back to your room, get your bags, and then you go to class. So that's every day. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, we had parades. So we had to get our rifles, our guns, polish those things up, make sure they're functioning correctly. And you had to do parade twice a week. And that was because every Friday in Charleston, the Citadel had a parade every Friday, a tourist attraction. So people were coming off campus, line up around the parade deck, sit in the bleachers and watch the Corps cadets march out, do their thing. And that was kind of a, a weekly tradition. So, yeah, you had PT tests. By PT, I mean physical training. You had to run obstacle courses. Uh, you had minimum push-ups and sit-ups you could do, had to do within a minute. You had to be able to jump in the deep end of a pool and tread for 60 seconds and swim the length and back. So it was all types of physical training uh, and discipline and that type of thing that was part of the normal curriculum at that school. So that was, yeah, military training. You, had, you wore uniforms. You had to shine your, you'd be in the right uniform, shine your brass, shine your shoes. Uniform had to be pressed, all those things. So you wore uniforms every day to all your classes? every day wow and off campus right yeah and a huge proportion of students then go into the military yes it might have been 40 60 40 went 60 didn't so it's not a huge i mean it was a big part of it but you know a lot of people decided they could make more money not being in military and it wasn't a requirement like this from some of our other it was completely optional but if you decide to go in you went in as an officer so it certainly was a good 
So one thing I'm really interested to ask you about is the experience of playing college football. Yeah. Because as far as I understand, some of the biggest sports stadiums in America are college football stadiums. Yeah. You have these 18-year-old guys playing in front of like sometimes 100,000 people. These guys who aren't being paid to play, they're, they're at college. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the largest stadium in the country actually is the University of Michigan Stadium. Uh, but the Rose Bowl is big. That's where USC plays. Georgia, University of Georgia gets about 102,000. It used to be 80. I think they added 20,000 more seats. Um, and the largest revenue-generating position, uh, a state uh, entity, is usually the college football program of the university in that state. <clears throat> big, big, big cash cow. And the kids don't get paid. In fact, they get their education paid for, but that's it. And I think a lot of people are now trying to make movements and implement laws and rules such that college players can be compensated because they generate so much income and they don't really get a chance to enjoy that other than get, you know, free sweatsuits and free dorm rooms. I mean, don't get it wrong. At some schools, these guys are treated like royalty, but, you know, you're putting your body on the line and put, you're paying a huge price for it too. So uh, when I played, People weren't trying to pay us, but we certainly, uh, you know, we got our education paid for and we uh, we got to enjoy that lifestyle, which I thought was great. It gave us a, a home away from home. It gave you a sense of community and belongingness. It gave you a sense of family. And uh, we, we all got a really good education as, as a result of it. So uh, I don't discount the value of that. And did you get to experience playing in front of big crowds like that? You know, uh, the Citadel was a medium-sized school. So when we go play against big schools, we play in front of big crowds. The last time I played in front of a crowd that big was about 77,000 in Columbia, South Carolina against the University of South Carolina. And we beat them on their home field on homecoming for the first time in 50 years. And it was a huge, huge, it was a college upset of the year, uh, only to be replicated again in 2015 or 16. I think it was Citadel went back up there and beat them again. So uh, I don't know if they'll be scheduling us anytime soon, but I know that, <laughs> I know that, uh, Clemson University dropped us from their schedule and, and Arkansas replaced us. Uh, we replaced them with Arkansas and we beat Arkansas also in front of about 70,000 people. So, you know, when you when you play at a smaller school like that, you thrive off of the big crowds, you know, something that you don't get to do every weekend. Citadel, I think our stadium at the time held about 32,000 people. And uh, when it was full, it was rocking. But, you know, we can imagine increasing that by twofold. The energy level is real high. You get excited about it. So, yeah. But I got a chance to do it a few times. When you first did that, did that kind of take you back or did you just take it in your stride like it was just no thing? Well, you know, I mean, I think we did a wonderful job of preparing for it. So we knew that it was going to be loud. We knew it was going to be a lot of people. Um, but the best thing that happened to us was the, the, the head coach and the people in the papers that made the game predictions predicted that we're going to get blown out and didn't think we had a fighting chance. And, you know, when you go to a military academy like Citadel, especially <clears throat> the last thing you want to do is tell these guys, they aren't good enough. They aren't big enough. They're not strong enough to compete because we go through things like I mentioned before with our training and our discipline that those guys don't get, they don't have to go through. So we were definitely tougher. We were definitely, definitely mentally tougher. And uh, although we didn't have all the athleticism they had, we had the discipline. So, you know, we didn't let the crowds phase us. It was part of the deal. We just wanted to go in there and shut them up. 
and that's what we did. So screw them. Yeah, that's so great. I I had a an ex uh, soccer player, a football as we call it, player on, and he said pretty much exactly the same thing about playing from the crowds. He just they he was more focused on his opponent. Yep. So that seems to be a common thread of of athletes. As you, I'd like to hear about your because at this stage your passion is football, and you're thinking that you'd like to play in the NFL. And could you tell us about reaching the end of college and kind of hoping to play in the NFL and and how that didn't work out? Well, you know, when you go to a school like Citadel, you know, you got to pass over a bunch of bigger schools to get there. So you don't walk in there with an unrealistic expectation that you're going to be a first round draft pick. You know, that's just not what you're thinking now. You know, when you get to be good at it and at that level, you face some really good competition and you do well against them. You think there's a slight chance you might have a shot at it, you know, and I watch guys play at bigger schools. I beat guys that play the bigger schools. So I thought I had a shot at it. You know, you never know what they're looking for, but then, you know, football is the type of game, American football that you don't leave. It leaves you at some point, at some point in time, you have to face the reality that they're looking for something different at the next level and you don't have it and you got to move on with your life. And that was a hard thing to swallow. Um, not because I had unrealistic expectations, but because I wanted at least a shot, you know, I'm the type of person that, you know, just give me a shot. Let me see what I can, let me make that. Let me find out for myself that I'm not, you know, good enough, but don't tell me without giving me a shot. So I never got that shot. And I think that's what bothered me the most, you know? Hmm. And I gather it's like you do kind of like a pro day where you they make you do various exercises like time trials and strength, you know, like lifting weights and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And you did all that. Yeah. They came out to the school. We had a pro day. I ran the 40, ran the uh, shuttle, did the 225 bench press, vertical jump, all that stuff. And nothing I did really jumped off the charts at them, nor, nor did my size. I was always listed at 6'3", 285. They said I was 6'2 and a half, 285. You know, just, you know, nothing jumped off the charts and said this guy physically can come in this league and compete. Uh, there have been lots of stories where guys didn't match up on the charts but went into the league and did really well. And I'd like to think that I could have been one of those. But, you know, I think that the powers that be in heaven above probably had a different path for me, which is, you know, while we're having this conversation today about my ability to sing in front of thousands of people as opposed to play in front of thousands of people. So, mm. you know, you have to accept that at some point. That's the hardest thing for me to accept. One of my funniest memories was uh, after, you know, not making it to the pros and finishing up college and getting my job at 3M, I went on a date with one of the girls that was an intern and the VP of the division gave me his uh, his seats. You know, they had a booth. They had like a box. Uh, for 3M at the at the Vikings game, the Minnesota Vikings game. So I figured that'd be a nice day. It's a preseason game. I got the box seat. I'm a young executive. I took her to the to the game, and I walked into that executive suite holding popcorn and a and a hot dog, and realized I'd never been to a football game as a spectator before in my life. And I started getting teary eyed because I saw the guys on the field and I didn't belong. For the first time in my life, I wasn't part of that. And that hurt. <laughs> so it took me a long time to get over that, man. <laughs> yeah, that's extraordinary. That was the first time. Yeah. But that is, as you say, that is a, one of the major themes of this podcast. And, you know, hearing about people, how people had the resilience, maybe when one thing hadn't worked out to kind of rise up from that and succeed in other fields. 
is a, is a big part of what we're here to talk about. Um, so when that didn't happen, you then went, you, you, you were at a bit of a crossroads, I gather. I saw in the commencement speech, you talked about kind of having to reinvent yourself because you weren't going to be a football player and you hadn't been studying music, even though you'd been singing and like you told us, like had a musical passion your whole life. So at that point, you're like, right, what do I do? Yeah, I mean, you know, the only logical conclusion at that point was to go get a job. I majored in English and, you know, I thought I was going to go to law school, but I changed my mind about that. There's too much reading involved. And uh, because of such, I had to get a job. So I started competing for jobs in different fields. And I think the beauty of the job market is, uh, you know, people look at your aptitude and your ability to adapt and think we can train him to do it. You don't go to college and learn how to do a specific job. You go to the college, I think, and this is just my theory. You go to college to prove to people that you're smart enough to do what they want you to do. And then, so somebody took a chance to me and gave me a job. So my whole thing was then I got to find a job and get to work so I can start building my life, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in the back of my mind, I was always hating that I didn't make it well, make it in football past where I did. And I think one of the reasons that drove me so much once I had a shot at being a musician was that I had a chance again, to do something special and be great at something. And I wasn't going to let that chance slip away without giving it my best effort. And that's, you know, that loss turned into a motivating factor hmm. for what ultimately became my musical career. So, And I want to hear all about the musical career, but but just uh, just before we get there, so you were working, you work for this company 3M, which I got is like a big, a big corporation that sells all sorts of different kind of medical equipment and all kinds of things. And you were working in sales for those guys. So I, I gather from uh, the speech you gave that like the kind of background you had and the training you had at Citadel to be super disciplined and all this kind of stuff was a real strength for you in that job. Did, did you find that you were kind of a step ahead of other people in the, in the professional world in terms of the grounding that gave you? Well, you know, there are a lot of people I worked with that were great at marketing. There are a lot of people I worked with that were great in sales. Uh, what I think the discipline environment and the Citadel taught me as a black guy, especially, and one of the reasons they hired me at 3M in Minnesota is because I was entering an all white environment, you know, up in Minnesota, not very, very culturally diverse. And they wanted somebody who could flow in that environment. So I think that I was well, I think I was well prepared to be able to flow in an environment where I was truly the minority. You know, when you grow up in cities like Atlanta, Georgia, which are predominantly black and led by black people, you know, you don't get to see much diversity in certain places. When you go to somewhere like St. Paul, Minnesota, you see quite the opposite. And they wanted somebody that could navigate those waters and survive in that type of environment. And I feel like I was adequately prepared for such. Um, The discipline and that type of thing is just something that came along with the territory. I was able to learn a completely different market, learn a completely different product line. And go out and be successful at A, marketing it, which I didn't study in college, and B, selling it, which I didn't study in college either. But I think that all those things helped me learn quickly and adapt and and, and turn it around such that I could be successful in that industry. So, Yeah. And so so let's get on to the music then. Um, I gather you were singing all the while you were singing in different ways like singing at friends weddings and you mentioned like singing the national anthem at sporting events and stuff like that so you were still getting a chance to sing but was it your wife kind of like set up an audition for you without you knowing it was that kind of the first step towards opera yeah well she 
she set up an audition for me with the Coral Arts Society of Washington, D.C. on a Saturday afternoon. I had no idea what was going to happen. Uh, she knew that I was singing at weddings all the time. And, and I think at the time I probably had sung at a Canadian League football game at that point. Uh, <clears throat> got used to being a spectator to a degree at, at games. But, uh, yeah, she was like, oh, yeah, you got an audition at 1 o'clock. Like, oh, crap. What I gotta do? So I had to go buy some music. You know, I was completely unprepared. And I walked in and sang the tuba mirum from the Mozart Requiem for Norman Scribner, who ran the uh, Coral Arts Society. He was the director of the Coral Arts Society of Washington. And, you know, when you hear a lot of people throughout your life tell you that you have a special gift and your voice is made for something different, it sounds good, but there really is no credibility behind it because you know that the people that's, that are saying this, in my opinion, really didn't have the, uh, the pedigree to make a, a decision as to whether or not what they were hearing was truly something special. But when someone of that level has the same reaction to your voice, you start thinking, well, maybe there's something there, you know, it's kind of a, a shock to everybody. So, um, yeah, he was incredibly surprised by what I was able to do vocally. And he said, my chorus is not a place built for a voice like yours. You should be singing solos. But since you aren't music at all, I'm going to let you into my chorus. So that's how it kind of that that started the uh, the wheels to turning in that regard. And then you were spotted by uh, by a lady who was like high up in a in an institution, right? Well, there's a few more steps to the puzzle than that, but <laughs> sure, F- fill it in for us. Yeah, there was Coral Art Society. I did that thing for a few months, sang a few productions with them. I was in the chorus, and I ended up taking taking another job up in New England with a division of Exxon and Monsanto. And while house hunting up there, we passed by the New England Conservatory of Music. And uh, Denise was like, why don't you go in there and see if they got something going on? So I didn't want to, but I stopped and got an application that they have for a weekend program called the Continuing Education Program. And uh, I went and auditioned for them a few weeks later and sang the national anthem for them. Oh, say, can you see? And uh, they heard my voice and thought, my goodness, have you ever thought about singing an opera? And I was like, no. So they put me in their opera studio, paid my money, went to opera studio. Never did it before in my life. But, you know, just learning music and putting things together. This is where you like, <clears throat> you take your own costumes, you make your own costumes, that kind of thing. Take your bathrobe. So I did a one scene with them and I got hired by a local company to do the role of the devil in an English opera by Michael Balfe. And it was at that production that Sharon Daniels from Boston University and a few people from Boston Lyric Opera heard me. And she walked up to me and said, I can change your entire life if you really want to study music. I think, you know, I think I can get you a full scholarship to come study at Boston University. And so she challenged me. She said, I need you to learn five pieces of music in different languages. I need you to come and audition for me in the spring because this was around Halloween. I need you to come audition for my staff in the spring. We'll keep in touch. And, uh, you know, here's a teacher you need to go learn these things from. He'll teach you everything you need to know. And uh, I went and learned with him, and I went and auditioned for her in the spring. And they took me, gave me a full scholarship. So I quit my job and started studying opera at the age of 30. So you had to learn languages, did you say? Yeah, man. I had to decide. You know, opera is sung in Italian, German, French, Russian, lots of different languages. And I had never done any of that before in my life. So once entering the school, you know, I had to, I had to pick up 
my ability to sing in those languages. I had to learn how to pronounce them. I had to learn what they meant. I had to learn how to translate. I had to learn how to read music at a high level. I had to learn a lot of things that I never learned. You got to realize at the Boston University Opera Institute, there are 12 singers and all 12 of those singers have their masters in music. And I was one of the 12, but I was the only one that had never studied music before. So it was a completely, uh, completely different thing for me. I had fellow students that were trying to help me learn how to do things on the fly because, you know, they had already been through all the training and I had no clue. And it was good to be in an environment where people are very helpful and they recognize talent and they did so without envy. So it was a very good environment for them to be in, you know? Yeah. And at this point, I guess like anyone, I mean, you were being given huge encouragement and I guess you could sense that you had a, a serious talent but you're still taking a massive risk there by leaving this, this very stable job and everything oh, yeah. to become an artist. Yeah. Were you yeah. were you feeling were you feeling the heat from that, or were you just kind of, you know, determined and and optimistic about it all? Well, I felt the heat before I before I went into it. <clears throat> I had lots of sleepless nights, lots of you know long conversations. Um lots of second guessing and then finally i can't remember exactly who it was just said you know what just enjoy the journey you got two years at the end of those two years worst case scenario you'll be able to say i went to school and i learned how to do these things best case scenario you won't ever have to come back to work again (laughs) so (laughs) just enjoy it and i i think that the the military aspect of it the discipline the citadel athletic discipline these are all things I gambled on. But what I did was I took my 401k and turned it into a Roth IRA and deducted my mortgage from that for two years. <clears throat> uh, so I wouldn't have to worry about paying for the house note, you know, that took the burden off of Denise. And she paid the utilities, which was what she was doing anyway. So we all kind of remained. We kept our our financial roles were intact. So there was not a real huge risk in that regard, at least for two years. And at the end of two years, if it didn't work out, let's go find another job, you know? So yeah. that gave me the comfort and saying, all right, let's just go try this thing out. But also, you know, if you're going to take that gamble on yourself, then you're going to put up, you know, you put all your effort into it to make sure that you're successful at it. And there is no guarantee, but I felt like I'm going to do everything that these people tell me to do to the best of my ability. So there will be no regrets on my end if it doesn't work out. Hmm. And if what they're saying is true, I'm going to find out because I'm going to do everything I'm supposed to do. Almost immediately, it started paying off. My first uh, my first couple of weeks at the Boston University Opera Institute, they gave me the lead role in Bluebeard's Castle to sing Bluebeard, which is Bella Bartok, which is atonal, hard stuff, you know, like, you know, basically... You know, this is a uh, this is virtuoso type stuff, you know, hmm. but it was in English instead of Hungarian. So that made it a little bit easier for me. <laughs> and I auditioned for the chorus at Boston Lyric Opera because all the students auditioned for the chorus because you can get a chorus gig and make a little extra money. And I auditioned for the chorus and the music director gave me the role of the king in Aida. So. In less than a month, I got a lead role at Boston University and I'm singing a principal role at the largest opera company in New England. And I have no training. So <laughs> it's, uh, you know, those are the types of things that you can't plan for, but you certainly can take them as signs that perhaps you're doing 
you're headed in the right direction, you know? Yeah. And sorry, just to be clear, was that upon graduation or before, like, as you were in the midst of your studies, you were getting into these things? It was the first, it was in the first three weeks of study. <laughs> <clears throat> I just got started. Yeah. Right. So this is something I'm curious to ask you about uh, when it comes to opera, because I think, you know, I'm absolutely no expert at all, uh, far from it on opera. And I'd say probably most of the listeners will be in the same camp. Could could you try and describe what separates a good opera singer from a world class opera singer? Uh, not a lot, you know. Uh, you you can be really good, and there are a lot of really good opera singers in the world. I mean, a lot, and most of them, maybe. 99% of them don't get a chance to sing at the Metropolitan Opera and places like that. And they're good, like really good, you know? Yeah. So this is like, a, it's kind of the equivalent of being a really good, you know, football player. And, you know, there are various leagues and various levels in Europe of football players. And to make it to the big, big, big league is a big, big, big deal. And to become an all-star and make the national team and compete in the World Cup, you know, it's like the best of the best of the best of the best. It takes that level. It's that, it's that unlikely. Mm. So, yeah. So are you saying that, that would seem to suggest there, there's an, there has to be an element of good fortune? Or is it just like a few degrees of talent, that like something a little bit indescribable? Yeah, my answer is yes. <laughs> the answer yeah, is is just is all the above you know it's a you know one of the things that worked in my favor is i'm a bass like a true bass which is a very rare vocal instrument if i were a you know a lyric soprano i remember one year i was at boston university and the audition tapes were coming in because people were still using cassette tapes and the box, we had a box of tapes and one of the instructors asked me to help her carry it upstairs. And in that box of 200 audition tapes or 300 audition tapes, there were 178 sopranos. I forgot how the total number was, but I remember the number being 178 for sopranos, 70 something for tenors, 50 something for mezzos, 40 something for baritones and like two basses. Right. So... <laughs> That, you know, so the fact that I was a bass certainly didn't hurt my chances. But, you know, to be a world class bass, then you, you know, you got to factor in every other bass that has studied opera in the whole entire world. And of that amount of people, only maybe 10 can make a career out of it, you know, where they can take care of themselves. Yeah. So it's, it's tight. It's really tight. <laughs> And you are very definitively one of those 10. For, for any listener who's not familiar uh, with your story, I mean, you have sung in, as far as I can see, all the biggest opera houses in the world and are an incredibly in-demand, like, lead bass opera singer. Well, <clears throat> if, there are, if there are 10 in the world, I wouldn't say I was in the top 10. I'd say I'm in the top three. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I'd argue with anyone that tried to tell me there are two more better than me, but that's just me being me. But uh, 
Yeah, you know, it's I'm I'm very blessed and I have a very good voice and I've been very, very fortunate to have a lot of opportunities and I worked really hard to maintain my position. So I'll just say that. <laughs> I like uh I like your honesty, you know. I, I think that no, that's you know. uh I that's to my mind part of the kind of American character, you know, if you're good at something, yeah, <laughs> you, you know it and you're not gonna be bashful about well, it. Well it's uh it could be very much American. It could also be very much athletics. It could, you know, I mean, I was watching uh, Randy Moss and Terrell Owens talk to each other the other day. And both of these guys are first ballot Hall of Famers and they played contemporaneously. And they're two of the best receivers to ever play the game. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys asked him, are you the best? Asked Randy, he said, well, yeah, I'm the best. And he asked Terrell Owens, well, I thought you were the best. He says, no, I'm the best. And they looked at each other and they laughed because, and they said, that doesn't cause a problem between you two. And Randy was like, no, because if he didn't think he was the best in the world, I would think he was weird. Like, you know, you've got to have that level of confidence. So, and I'm not just saying it because I think it, I don't think there's three bases that can see me on the planet, but you know, um, I'll take the top five and go with that. <laughs> And speaking of singing in all those great operas, so, you know, as I said, I'm, I'm no opera expert. So perhaps I should hand over to you. Like, could you tell us some of the some of the big highlights from your career, like which operas and which houses you've sung in? Well, you know, there's honestly, when I go back to the numbers, like I said, you know, go to the average person in conservatory, not the average. Let's just take a conservatory in England or America where they have like the top five of their best students. And these top five students were the best in their high school, best in their college, best in their grad school, best in their post postgraduate program, best in every summer program, best at conservatory. And let's just say you take the top five of every school. So you, maybe you have a thousand candidates. One of those people will sing at the Met. That's how, that's how unlikely it is. So when I start talking about highlights of my career, I mean, if I omit, you know, singing at, you know, Houston Grand Opera, someone would think that I was crazy. Because when I talk about highlights, I'm, I, I skip over a lot of things. So one of my highlights is the first time I was singing at Carnegie Hall. My first time singing at the BBC proms at uh, Royal Albert Hall in London. Um <clears throat> My first time singing in San Francisco Opera, Los Angeles Opera, with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, with the LA, the North, the L.A. Philharmonic, the San Francisco Symphony. I've sung with the New York Philharmonic. Um, you know, singing at Teatro Alla Scala in Milan. You know, there's so many highlights and so many things that are special. That I can't really pick out one or two or three of them, you know. And it's something I like to ask uh, performers whenever I think of it during these interviews uh, is if you could kind of take us inside the internal experience for you as you as you perform, you know, people talk about kind of going into the zone and stuff like that, or however you would describe it. How would you describe the internal experience for you when you're standing on stage singing a singing a great part? Well, it depends on uh it depends on what night it is. You know, for me, the opening night is always the pressure because that's the night where they do all the reviews. That's when the New York Times is there. That's when Opera News is there. That's when the local papers are there. All the critics are there. 
it's the worst time for them to be there because it's the opening and all the nerves are bad. But, you know, that's when they're there. So that's when all the fun stops. No more social media being silly. No more funny phone calls with my frat brothers, my kid. It's time to focus. And it turns into walking on the 50-yard line and shaking hands with the opponent and flipping the coin and deciding who's going to get the ball first. It turns into that type of mentality, that type of focus, that type of readiness, that type of energy. After the opening night, it gets real easy for me. I can, I can be my normal self and walk in. Because I'm a professional, I can turn it on when I need to. And when my voice is in good shape, I don't get nervous. When it's not in good shape is when I have a problem because then you have to rely on other things than your natural God-given talent. So, you know, a lot of people will say I'm impossible to be around on opening night. Uh, they may be telling the truth, but I don't think I'm impossible to be around. I just think don't talk to me and stay out of my way and I'll be fine. <laughs> but it just takes that level. You know, I, I go into that level of, uh, and the reason I think is A, is because I have a certain expectation of myself but B, I have a lot of responsibility attached to my ability to deliver at a world-class level. And that's expected of me. And that's my job. Mm. And I know how fragile an existence this is if you're not <clears throat> delivering at a world-class level. You know, the yeah. difference is earning lots of money so you can live very comfortably as opposed to you know, next level down, earning just enough to make ends meet, as opposed to working every gig you can and getting a side job to try to pay the bills. So mm. I don't want to be in category B or C. I always want to be in category A. So, yeah, you know. uh, it's really interesting. I mean, I have not played the equivalent of the Met in acting, but I do know what press nights feel like. And what you said there, I completely echo like I, I call it uh, after press night, you're out in open water is the way I always think of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, you feel so much more free. It's, yeah. a, it's a strange thing. Um, I want, there's, there's two uh, big topics I'd love to touch upon with you um, before we before we part ways. One is, I gather you're um, quite religious, you know, you're, you're, you have religious faith. Um, and as we talked about earlier on, um, your dad was a preacher and, and your your granddad was a preacher as well. Um, I'm curious about that I, I, because, you know, I would be honest in saying I'm not religious really at all. Mm. And uh, I, like I've heard you say in interviews and stuff that it's, you feel like it was kind of God's plan for you that you had this voice and this gift to do what you do. Um, and I suppose my kind of perspective is I feel that uh, the world and is a lot more chaotic and unpredictable than that and and fortune kind of falls quite randomly upon people you know or misfortune um so i'm just curious to hear about your your thoughts on that um and and a bit about your faith well i think that uh you know i grew up in a in a church family my dad was was a minister he became a minister when i was seven years old he was a deacon before that my mother was one of the founders of the choir at her church you know my grandfather on my mom's side was a preacher you know they were church folks so we grew up with a strong faith and understanding that, you know, God's will is what is being done. And you have to accept, accept such and believe in such. I also have, have recently learned about what, what Christians refer to as God having favor on people. And 
I believe that I'm one of those people that God has chosen to, for whatever reason, give the responsibility and the duty of delivering this type of music to everyone that, that wants to hear it and using me as a vehicle to do such, such that my story and my background and my journey serves a purpose to motivate and encourage and, and, and inspire other people. So I believe that that's why it all came to play the way it did. Um, it is not a script that you can write in Hollywood, but it's my real life. And I think that because I have so many different backgrounds, because I'm an African-American, because I grew up in Atlanta, because I ran away from music and played sports and I was a tough guy and I did all those things and I can do this, I think it's positioned me to reach a lot of people, not just the audiences that appreciate this type of music, but young black kids, young men, black, white, red, brown, purple, yellow, <clears throat> that don't see this as an option, that don't know what they're going to do with their lives, that don't know how to sort things out or to look at their lives and, and see that there are lots of different things that you can do. You know, for whatever reason, I feel like I've been chosen and put in this position such that my story of my life can encourage and uh, influence others. So I believe that that was a part of the divine plan that I had nothing to do with. So that's, but that's, you know, that's how I was raised. So. And and obviously, um, if if that's what you believe, then obviously that what happened with football was part of that plan as well. The 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 fact that that didn't work out and the way that kind of steeled you was all part of that plan yeah. for you as well. Well, if I'd been a professional football player, I probably wouldn't be a professional opposite right now, you know? Um, yeah. And I think that one, the, the unlikelihood of those two disciplines meeting in the same place and one, the athletic part, fueling and preparing me for and making me better at part B is unheard of. But, I lived that life and I don't make these stories up. There yeah. is not one aspect of what I do today that wasn't influenced by what I used to do. So, and I talk about that all the time because people find that to be the least likely of parallels. But in my opinion, it's, it's a natural flow. Not that every football player can be an opera singer, but every football player, if you've been disciplined enough to go through an athletic program and play and bust your butt and go out there and get your nose bloodied and get your arm cracked and get a headache and get up off the ground and fight some more, well, damn it, you can go back and study music and study anything else and get good at it because everything else is a lot easier than that. So, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I heard you tell the story of like the first time you were shouted at by an opera director. Um, yeah. And you just being like, and everyone around you kind of going, oh my God, are you okay? And you're like, that's the worst I'm going to have to deal with. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I've been yelled at, had things thrown at me by coaches. And then, you know, the response to that is you got to go out there and line up in front of a guy that's getting yelled at by his coaches to take your head off and get through you. And I'm getting yelled at to make sure he doesn't, he doesn't want to get yelled at anymore and let his teammates down. I certainly don't want to get yelled and let my teammates down. He wants to kick my butt. Well, I'm definitely going to kick your butt and that's the option. So I got to go out and fight these guys who are the best players in their region, best players at their school, you know, on full scholarship paid for, you know, with one objective in mind, that's to beat me. And my objective is to beat him. Well, when you face that type of thing, you know, a conductor yelling at you because the notes aren't right, it's like, yeah, whatever. But I mean, <laughs> I, I never took it like that because I, I I was able to handle it, but I never took it lightly because if this conductor's yelling, it's because he wants something from me. And it's my job, if I'm going to do this business, 
to give him what he wants. Now, the normal kid that went to conservatory and didn't go to the Citadel and have people yelling at him and making him do push-ups and do a PT runs and didn't get, you know, his nose, never got hit hard enough where your sinuses break loose and there's blood coming out your nose. You know, that guy, the kid that never went through all that would break down and cry when the conductors yelled at him. I've seen it happen. Hmm. I've seen people cry in voice lessons. I've seen people have breakdowns because the rehearsal didn't go well. That doesn't even affect me. <laughs> Did you see Whiplash, uh, the film about the drummer? I saw part of it. I, I think it was on in the background when I was playing cards at someone's house one night and how that guy was really, really just slapping his hand. Yeah. I remember seeing those scenes at least. Yeah. 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 And that's, so that's quite, quite true to life, I guess, from what you're saying of certain. Oh, well, I think that's an extreme part of it. That's an extreme version of it. But, you know, this business is tough. It's not for the faint of heart, you know? Yeah. And I see a lot of faint of heart people here. You know, it's, <laughs> I'm not trying to say that all opera singers are, you know, punks, but I think that me having the mental toughness to sift through and turn around and deliver certainly helped me a lot, you know? Yeah. And um, that kind of brings me on. Uh, I wanted to ask you too, because before we started the interview this evening, you said that uh, you had been talking yesterday, I think you said about um, being a, being a black artist in uh, the world of classical music. Um, and it's something we haven't talked about too much so far tonight, but obviously given, um, well, given the conversation that's ongoing um, in the world at the minute, I'd just love to get your perspective on that. Um, a, I, you said in the commencement speech, you, you told a story about um, when you were a kid in the car with your dad and, and you saw like these guys with Confederate flags and it, like KKK kind of guys. Um, so I'm curious about how it affected you in your earlier part of your life, but also about um, if that's been a factor being in the opera world for you? Well, they weren't kind of like KKK. They were the actual KKK <laughs> okay. wearing the the hoods and the white robes and with the stripes on them and handing out pamphlets at the Union City exit, which is one exit away from where I live right now. Right. <clears throat> um, when I was a kid, I was with my dad, so I wasn't that scared, but I was like, you know, this is bad news. Um, and you know that it exists in the world, but I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and this place where this occurred was just outside Atlanta. So I had a sense of protection in that. I know they weren't going to bring their bus to Atlanta. So I wasn't worried about that. The other thing is I knew that racism existed, but I never personally had any racist attacks come my way that I am aware of um, when you're 6'3", 285 and a college athlete, racist people don't confront you physically. I mean, it's just, it's common sense that that's not the guy you want to go after. And that's okay. But I'm not certain that it hasn't affected me in my life in a lot of different ways, even at the Citadel. Um <clears throat> I mean, there are rumors that my head coach got fired ultimately because he played too many black players. He's also the winningest player in my school's history, coach in my school's history. But there were some old guys, apparently some old alumni that didn't appreciate the fact that he didn't have enough white boys out there playing. Um, in the opera world, you know, I always say that the opera world is a microcosm of the real world. So whatever, whatever we're facing in the real world, we face in the opera world. 
Is there racism? There has to be just by the law of averages. Hmm. Is there evidence of such? Well, I don't have hard evidence, but I can tell you that the number of African-American people on stages is highly disproportionate to the number that study in institutions. And based on the talent level I've heard, there are a lot of black folks that should be singing at some of the same places. So is there racism? I'm sure. Is there racial bias? I'm sure. Is there an aesthetic quality that certain directors and conductors and, and, and general managers want to see on their stages? I'm sure. You know, I uh, had a conductor once tell me that Morris, you know, the problem with the black voices, you know, they are for all intents and purposes, fairly new to this game. And most of us who grew up loving this music only heard white performers sing it. So we're used to hearing that type of sound with these roles. So if we hear something different, it doesn't really sound right to us. Not justifying the race problem, just saying that this is part of the problem because we hear these different types of voices, different colors and voices, and it doesn't fit what we want to hear. All of these things are just, you know, explicate, ex, uh, explanations and or excuses and or justifications and or whatever they are to try to explicate why the differentials are so vast. Hmm. That being said, you know, people like me are very outspoken about these things. <laughs> and I always try to lead. I try to lead by example. And I also believe that to whom much is given, much is acquired, required. Um, so I try to make sure that I point out these deficiencies, these variances, these uh, disproportionate numbers, and try to make sure that I do what I can to make sure that this is not the same, that we eradicate this problem. And one of the, the main thing I can do is walk out on stage and perform at a high level where people go, whoa, <laughs> you know, and, mm. and that's my, that's the best thing I can do. And I encourage all of my colleagues to do the same. Like, you know, it's a thing in America where we always say, if you're going to be black and do something, you got to be better, way better than the competition just to be considered equal. I took that with me. You know, that's the other part of my motivation. I knew I had to be extremely good to get a fair shot. And, you know, I strove to do that. So, yeah. And that makes sense. That ties in with what you were saying about how you feel on press night, that kind of intensity of, you know, feeling the pressure to deliver. Well, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things, brother. I mean, you got to also remember, I came from a football background from Atlanta, Georgia, the military academy in the South. There's a lot of people in the opera world before I got, before I became famous. <laughs> there are a lot of people that just did not buy the story. There are a lot of people that just thought this is a five minute show. He'll be done in five years, three years. There's a lot of people that thought there's no way in hell this guy can be that good. A lot of people that thought this guy's lying. He's going to conservatory somewhere. You can't get that good without. So I'm always trying to prove to everyone that I'm the real deal, even at this point in my life. And everybody knows me. So I carry a lot of, a lot of baggage with me that, motivates me and i i don't want to ever lose that edge yeah i don't i want to lose it yeah and as a matter of interest do you think your voice or you know your ability as an opera singer has changed a lot since those early like when you first started that course and you got work really quickly or is it just like a natural gift that's kind of obviously you're you're focused and everything but in terms of your actual technique has much changed Oh, God, yeah. My, my technique is totally different than it was when I started. And uh, I can do things now vocally that I couldn't dream of doing then. 
I mean, they're, you know, I, I had a natural sound, but I had limited capabilities because, you know, it's like, it's like growing up in the neighborhood and being the fastest kid on your block. Right. But that doesn't necessarily transfer into being an Olympic track star. Hmm. Right. You got to, Yeah. You got to start off fast, but now you got to learn how to come out your stance, keep the angle low and when to come up, how many steps to take, you know, how to fire out the blocks faster, technique, technique, steps, steps, you know, you got to fine tune that thing before it's world-class. So, you know, you could be the fastest guy in your neighborhood, fastest guy in your high school, but are you Olympic ready? It's going to take a lot of, and that's why I figured with the voice, you know, I came out, I definitely had some natural tools, but to get to a world-class level, it's going to take some real fine tuning. And I'm at that point, you know, I'm the, I know my voice. I know how to use it. I can do a lot of things I was totally incapable of, not just vocally, but linguistically, stylistically, uh, you know, there's so many things artistically. I can do a lot of things now I couldn't do then. And that's part of the process of growing and getting better, you know. Mm. Um, we're nearly out of time. I just wanted to ask you one more question. There, there's In the things I've read about you, there's a, there's a lovely story of how you met your wife. Uh, do you mind sharing that with us? Oh, yeah, man. Um, how did I meet Denise? I was on my first trip from 3M going to a national sales meeting. I was living in Washington, D.C., and there was a huge snow that morning. And I drove to my frat brother's house. He was going to take me to the airport. I almost missed my flight. And she was a flight attendant on my flight from Washington Dulles Airport to Dallas. Dallas was a stopping point. I was on my way to Palm Springs, California. And she happened to be on her way to L.A., but she was on my flight. She worked my flight from Dulles to Dallas. And that's how I met her. And, uh. I was playing Wheel of Fortune on my laptop at the time. This is like 1993. So it was probably, you know, green graphics. It was bad. It was probably bad. But she stopped on my seat and asked, what was I doing? And wanted to know if she could play and sat on the arm of my seat and started playing with me. And I was wondering, does she do this to everybody or is she just doing it because I'm cute? <laughs> like, you know, it was a pretty empty flight. So she tells me, well, the only reason I did it is because it was an empty flight. And you look. I was like, yeah, whatever. You probably do that all the time. But I didn't take it seriously. I just gave her my business card. And she called me that night. And we pretty much have talked every night ever, except for when she's mad at me, which is all the time. So, okay, we don't talk every night. But, you know, we, we that's when the relationship started right then. So that's where I met her. That's nice. Well, I think that's a, that's a nice image to go out on. Um thanks so much for uh your time and for sharing your story i really appreciate it and uh yeah it's a really cool story and into numerous worlds i know very little about so it's um it's really <laughs> cool to hear about all of them well thanks for the opportunity man uh when is when when the link is ready send it over to me i'd love to have it take a listen and are you posting it on social media and all that stuff too absolutely absolutely okay yeah I'll let me know we'll okay, do bro. we'll do all right man thanks Thank a lot you. man see you later Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was my interview with Morris. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have an unusual life story or know someone who does, please get in touch with me by email at patspodcastpeople at gmail.com. As I say every episode, I need all the help I can get finding the most interesting stories possible. If you enjoy the podcast and think it's a worthwhile venture, you can support it on Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash patspodcast. I would really appreciate any contribution you see fit to give and it will help me to invest more time in the podcast. You can find me on Twitter. It's at Pat's Podcast.
In two weeks' time, I'll be talking to Ish Aladi. Ish is remarkably a classically trained and award-winning actor and simultaneously a fully-fledged doctor who studied medicine at Cambridge University. Join me in two weeks' time to hear his story. Thanks for listening. Thank you.